Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two friends and co-hosts, Chris Dorides and Marissa Di Natale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Morning, guys Mark. Getting, getting snow up there in the Northeast? Oh, Marissa, you're not. I know I'm not getting snow in Southern California. Snow, Southern no, California. not yet. Yeah. The climate is changing, but not that rapidly. Right. Nice in Southern California, I assume. Uh, it is. It's it's nice. It's about 60 degrees, maybe 55, 60. 60. Yeah. yeah. And sunshine. No sunshine, actually. No sunshine. Yeah. I, Chris, I, that doesn't sound like so nice to me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are supposed to get rain for, for the weekend. Well, that's a good thing, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. As we say yeah. here. <laughs> and Chris, we're uh, I'm down in Florida, but you're up uh, in Philly getting a lot of snow, yeah. I understand. We are. Uh, second snow day. This week, so uh, if there's some chaos in the background, that's that's why. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about this. I thought school days were a thing of the past with virtual learning. I guess not, huh? Snow days? Yeah, snow days, right? I mean, you could, they, don't, they don't just immediately get on the PC and do the the virtual thing. That's not just automatic, I guess. No, I, no, they're not corporations. They're okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they got bus schedules. Everything is planned, right? So can't just uh, can't just change over so quickly. Yeah, but I I know there's some relief in Philadelphia to get snow because I think there was like two years of no snow. That's right. Some outrageous, yeah. So anyway, okay. Well, we got an action-packed podcast. This is going to be all about housing, and we've got a great guest to help kind of figure out what's going on, and that's Robert uh, or Rob Dietz uh, from the National Association of Home Builders, Chief Economist. Hey, Rob, how are you? Doing well. Good morning. So you were you, when I was emailing you last night. You were getting on a plane coming back to DC. Where were you? I was in uh, Kansas City this week uh, as part of uh, my duties for NHB. We try to get out in front of our local chapters. Uh, so I travel once or twice a week. I think next week I'm going to uh, New Orleans and St. Louis. Oh, so you travel a lot then? Yeah, yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And Kansas City I had it thawed out. When I was I watched a little bit of that Dolphins Kansas City game. That was, yeah. was pretty brutal. Actually, yeah, my wife and uh, one of my twin boys actually attended that game in person. She's Ooh. from the Kansas City area, so they flew back to D.C. I flew out there. It was it was a little bit warmer uh, from what they experienced, uh, but it's uh, it's still been pretty cold. Pretty cold. Well, uh, I'm glad you're safe and sound and on the podcast. Um, and uh, maybe you could tell us, just tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become chief economist? Uh, and I've known many NAHB chief economists. I all going all the way back. I don't know if you remember Dave Siders. You remember oh, Dave? Yeah. Yep. yeah. Dave was yeah. my my first boss. Uh, yeah, we've we've been lucky. We we had a series of Daves. We had Dave Siders, yeah. uh, who multiple decades, and a Mark. You you worked with him a lot. Then we had Dave yep. Crow. Uh, when I basically applied for this position, they said, well, your name's not Dave. I said, well, my middle, <laughs> my middle name is Dave. So uh, that kind of got me in the door a little bit there. But no, I've, I've been at NHB now for uh, 18 years. I, I joined in November 2005. As housing data people will remember, November 2005 was the peak for single wow. family starts. So maybe I've been the uh, the bad luck uh, uh, element uh, for the industry there. But uh yeah, for the last eight years, I've been the uh, the chief economist, and uh, uh, my wife and I are both economists. We both got our, our, our PhDs at uh, the Ohio State University in the early 2000s, and uh, uh, been lucky. I, I had a lot of good housing economist mentors. I, I literally got into housing economics 
uh, when I was 19 years old. And uh, my principal <laughs> of economics professor at George Washington University, uh, Professor Anthony Gazer, uh, was the housing economist. At oh, Chief. is that right? Wow. And I, I, I thought I was going to do macro and maybe law school or something like that. And he, he kind of said, no, you're interested in maps. You want to do housing economics. So hmm. uh, I'm really, really lucky in terms of uh, being mentored by a lot of really good housing people. Well, I remember the NHB used to have this annual conference. I don't know if you still do uh, at your headquarters at HQ in DC, which is you know, a really nice HQ. Uh, do you, are you still there? The same HQ, or yeah, we're still there at Fifteenth and M. Uh, we're yeah, Fifteenth and M. Yeah, had a corner neighbors with uh, Fannie Mae when they moved from Northwest DC. Although I guess yeah. in the news this week uh, they may be giving up the lease of that new building, oh. which opened in late 2019. <laughs> um, so <laughs> kind of a, a signal on the on the office market and less of the housing market. But yeah, we used to have an annual forecast conference. That was kind of a casualty of the, the yeah. great recession and the housing crunch. Uh, now we do a variety of uh, uh, virtual events. And, uh, you know, really our, our focus is trying to get in front of builders on the road. Um, so uh, my, my, <laughs> my, my biggest trip this year, I, I, uh, Last week was in Utah, and I got stuck oh. up highway for three hours when they Ooh. closed it in front of me. Um, so there's <laughs> there's a fair amount of travel in this job, but it's nice. You you really do get to learn uh, that kind of the local commentary from the builders, the remodelers, bankers, realtors uh, to match the data that we all stare at every day. I, I got a great story about one of those uh, conferences. Uh, it was right before uh, the whole world changed for the housing industry, you know, it was like circa, it might've been 2005. Dave, Dave Siders would have been the chief yep. economist then. Yeah. So, and I had been doing these conferences for a number, not a lot of years, a number of years. Uh, and, but uh, this one, I was very lugubrious about the housing market. I mean, I was, this, we got a big problem dead ahead and Dave got so annoyed at me. I mean, really <laughs> annoyed because, you know, to some degree, you know, he was a bit, he in particular sure. was a bit of a cheerleader, you know, sure. And he got really mad at me uh, in a nice kind of way. Uh, but, you know, I, I was walking out of the uh, conference feeling, you know, a little uneasy, uh, you know, because he was he was definitely mad and he was a, he was a force. You know, he was, yeah. he was well known in the industry. And I, I just felt a little queasy about it. And so there's a hotel right across the street. I can't remember. It's a nice hotel. Uh, the, the, the Madison. Yes. The Madison. Right. So I walk into the Madison you know, thinking maybe I'll just get a cup of coffee. And th I'm not making this up. Uh, All right. Rob. I turn the corner in the hallway and I'm face to face. You'll never guess who. The Dalai Lama. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> kidding. I'm not kidding. The Dalai Lama. This is the oddest story. All right. All right. Is, absolutely. I'm not making this up. I'm not. And I'm looking at this guy. He's looking at me and that, like, of course, his bodyguards were like, what the hell just happened? You know, and I'm going, I know this guy. Who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and, and before I could figure it out, his bo the bodyguards ushered him away, you know, ushered him away. And I go, OK, I, I must be OK if I just ran into the Dalai Lama. Yeah, I got some karma. Yeah, did you take that as some sort of me, karmic no problem. sign? The world's on my side. The world's on my side. <laughs> Well, yeah, your, your forecast bizarre? call proved correct. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And it's so bizarre. I think I'm, maybe I'm making that up. How, how could that possibly happen? You know? <laughs> you know, it's really weird. It's so weird. Anyway, uh, let's talk about housing. And this is a great day to talk about housing. Uh, this is um, 
Friday, January the 19th, and we just got the report from the National Association of Realtors on home sales, existing home sales yeah. for the month of December. And boy, were they bad. Uh, I mean, I think they fell again in the month from a very low November. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think for the year, if you look at all home sales, it's like maybe just over 3 million. And that's about as low as it's been in, I don't know, 25, 30 years. So, I mean, I think it was like 4 million, right? Lowest since nineteen eighty five. Just over four million. Oh, right? Just over four million for the full year. Yeah, yeah for the full year. Uh, and, and for December, was that just above? What was that number? Was that? That was three seventy eight. Yeah. Oh, three point eight. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, that's just amazing, right? I mean, it's lower than in the teeth of the pandemic. Shutdowns are pretty close. You have to go back to the kind of the height of the financial crisis to see those kinds of numbers. I mean, the market is really, at least in terms of home sales, taking it on the chin. Yeah. From yeah. from the demand side and the supply side, right? That the the last year and a half have been pricing out on demand, and of course, then supply is is constrained by the mortgage rate lock in effect. Oh yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And and that is that to what you ascribe what's going on here? It's the the lock in effect. Is that primarily what's going on? Maybe, maybe you can just explain that. You know, in terms of what's going on. Yeah, it, undoubtedly, the, the the market is supply constrained because at the same time, while the volume levels are down, the the pricing is up. I think it was up four percent year over yeah. year uh, on the data they released this morning. So. I tend to think of it as a short-term effect and a, a long-term effect. The, the short-run effect is undoubtedly the mortgage rate lock-in effect. So if you're a, you're a homeowner and you've got a two and a half or a three percent thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage, you're going to be a little less likely to put your home on the market and go out and get a six point six percent thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage. As, as rates settle in lower, and that is our our forecast that gap will close and some of that inventory will unlock. So 2024 should see rising inventory levels. But I think in, in a lot of the, the business press commentary, we also miss the, the long run factor, which is that the housing stock is too small relative to the population and the characteristics of, of households. Uh, and that really is due to what we've, we've indicated is a, basically almost a decade long period of underbuilding. So high home prices, despite high interest rates, that seems to be uh, pretty consistent with the story of uh, an insufficient housing stock. Yeah. And I think just to put a finer point on it, I think the average coupon or the average interest rate on an on a mortgages that are outstanding, and I think there's like 50 million or so mortgages out there, is 3.5%. I think you said, did you say that 3.5%? Yeah, I just use that as an example. Yeah, I think like that's the number. Yeah, ninety percent of existing mortgages have a rate less than six percent, so well below current market rates. Yeah. Hey, Chris. Or I mean, that that seems that's a very compelling uh, reason for why we're not seeing homes transact. The home sales are on the floor. Any other reason that you can think of why? I mean, is there anything else going on? Is it simply that uh, that's driving uh, this? these these very weak sales yeah i i wouldn't i would think That's so it's it. the supply right it's an unusually low level of supply um and you know, it, that's really the barrier right that's that's what drive that's what's driving the market and keeping the house prices up right that's the telltale sign that it is supply not the demand but can I give you a kind of an interesting divergence for this yeah. year so we were talking about existing home volume yeah. 
down in multi-decade mm-hmm. lows. Yeah. New home sales right. post an increase yeah, in 2023. Yeah. Now, yeah. why is that? Despite all the kind of the headwinds, and we can we can talk about all the supply side factors, but it's because new construction is trying to fill the gap. So if you look at total inventory levels, I don't have the, the data from this morning, but uh, in recent months, new home inventory has been about a third of total inventory in the market. Typically, it's about 12%. So, so you know, it, it, it's not an automatic process. The development process for land can take two to three years. Home building can be a six to eight month process. But, but because of that restricted supply on the resale side, new construction is attempting to fill part of that gap. Yeah, in my kind of simplistic way of looking at the data, we're, say we're at 4 million existing sales, typically it's kind of closer to six. So there's a shortfall of about, 2 million relative to kind of typical home yeah. sales level. It goes up and down and all around, obviously, on, based on conditions, but based on the mobility of the population cutting through the kind of business cycle, that's kind of the number you get. And with new home sales, we're at 600K, you know, roughly speaking, and kind of typical would be 750K. So it's down, but it's not down nearly as much as right. the existing market. And my thought or my explanation for what's going on in the new home market was also that builders have effectively cut price in the existing market. As you pointed out, no one's cutting price. Prices are still rising in most of the country, but for, for the builders, they are effectively cutting price in lots of different ways. The so-called interest rate buy down three, two, one buy down seems to be the most popular way of doing it. But they, and if you talk to a builder and I know you do all the time, uh, but when I talk to them, they say, we've, you know, if you kind of translate these these incentives, it, it it's about ten percent of the price of a home, and that's helped to help them support the market. Is that is that consistent with your view? Roughly, I I think that may be a fairly good representation of particularly larger builders that have deeper larger builders, markets, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. and and that market share, if you're talking like the say the top 100 builders, and there there are fifty thousand home building companies in in the country. Really? But the, the top, yeah, it, it used to be ninety thousand <laughs> uh, back before the Great Recession. So, uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, you're talking about forty percent of the market, and and mortgage rate buy downs seem to be the most effective and the most utilized. I think if we look at the the census data on new home prices, it's it's down about six percent year over year. Uh, I think the last thing builders want to do in the steps of incentives is an outright price cut particularly in an environment where building material costs uh, continue to uh, edge higher, although that has slowed as well, which is probably a good sign for uh, inflation moving forward. Um, I, I think the, the the trick actually going to, the challenge for builders uh, moving forward over the next year, year and a half is as interest rates settle in a little bit lower, how they begin to deal with buyers who expect price cuts or mortgage rate buy downs and begin to say, you know what, that was really compressing some margins. Uh, Now we're moving to a a more normalized uh, market. We're we're not there yet, but I I think that's likely to happen. Excuse me. Now to get home sales back up, we need an improvement in affordability. And that can happen in uh, three possible ways. One is lower rates. Uh, Two is higher incomes. Three is lower house prices. Uh, prices don't seem to be coming in. Right, uh, incomes are rising. Fortunately, we've it looks like we've avoided a, re- a recession. Uh, but the key here, I think, is mortgage rates. <laughs> and you mentioned in your forecast, 
that you have mortgage rates coming in. They're, they they peaked at the 30-year fix, peaked at around 8% back a, a couple, three months ago. We're right. now down, as you said, 6-6. Six, six. Where do you think rates are headed here? Yeah, we've we've gone back and forth on this every month when we we update uh, our, our forecast. I, right now, I think uh, we'll likely see maybe at the average for the fourth quarter, uh, 6.3, 6.2%. Uh, we, we, we're I, we're con- more conservative than some other forecasts. And from the 10-year treasury rate and sort of say, okay, here's here's where we think the, the 10-year treasury rate's going, given expectations of monetary policy and economic growth. But something that has changed in the last two or three years is that the spread between the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage and the 10-year treasury has really expanded. So uh, like you were saying uh, back in the fall when we were touching 8% rates on the, on the Freddie Mac survey, the spread was about 300 basis points. The average for the the decade following the the financial crisis was about 160 to 180 basis points. So you kind of have to make an assumption of what's going to happen to that excess spread. If you're looking at a forecaster who's saying, you know, we're going to see sub 6% rates by the end of the year, which I think is too optimistic, they're probably making an indication I think that spread is going to come down. Uh, pretty quickly, and th- and there's a lot of guesses on you know why that spread is expanded. I think a lot of it likely has to do with quantitative tightening, and the Federal Reserve's uh, allowing the the mortgage-backed securities, the 2.7 trillion of MBS that they they built up in their balance sheet, letting that roll off, and then some uncertainty with the housing market itself. Uh, it, so you you froze just for right when you got to the kind of the uh, the, the the bottom line. <laughs> Where you thought mortgage rates were going to go. So we're at 6.6. So let me ask it this way. A year from now, and obviously forecasting, anything is hard. Forecasting interest rates is very intrepid. Uh, So, you know, with that as a stipulation, in your base case, most likely scenario, where do you think mortgage rates are going to be by this time next year? Uh, Oh, so this time next year, we're looking at uh, close to 6%. Close to 6 yeah, right. yeah. What we've been discussing is the fourth quarter of this year, six point three, six point two, and yeah. then move closer to six by the time we start twenty twenty-five. Right. And let me ask you this: when in the long run, abstracting from the vagaries of everything, uh, <laughs> you know, what should the thirty-year fixed-rate mortgage be? You know, if you're kind of a, a prudent uh, planner in the housing ecosystem, or your potential buyer down the road. What what kind of is a normalized mortgage rate in your mind? Uh, talking about normalized uh, variables uh, in the post financial crisis housing market is always dangerous, but uh, I, I think we're probably headed down to about five and a half, maybe a little bit lower than five and a half on on the thirty year fixed rate mortgage. That's important because if builders or buyers are thinking that we're going to see three and a half percent again, uh, they're they're kidding themselves. Uh, and and that, that can play an important role in terms of those buyers that were priced out of the market and are sitting on the sidelines. If, if they're waiting to get their their neighbors, you know, 3% rate, uh, they're going to be waiting re- a really long time. Hey, Chris, I think we're, we have rates coming in. Uh, if you told me uh, we're closer to 6% on the 30 or fixed a year from now, that sounds about right. Yeah. And I think we have rates in the long run normalized settling in between five and a half and six. Five so and that would be, a, yeah. is that right? Five and three quarters. Yep. Okay. Uh, do you, do you want to just 
decompose that and describe how, why we think that spread that Rob talked about is going to compress? Uh, sure. I think he already alluded to some of the, uh, the reasons, um, right? You have the the Fed, which was a big buyer of mortgage-backed securities during the pandemic, uh, no longer purchasing, right? So that's you, know, you have a, a fairly substantial uh, investor, you know, no longer in the market and who's going to replace them. You also have a, a number of foreign central banks that uh, also were uh, big buyers, also retreating, right? They've got their own issues, right? So they're not necessarily participating. So, you know, that alone, at least in the short term, that would uh, would see spreads widening out in order to clear the market, right? We have to attract uh, investors back in. I think over time, we will see more investors coming in. We also see that the mortgage-backed security market will be a bit smaller, right? We're not originating as much, so we'll you know, things right. will normalize along that dimension. There's that uh, uncertainty in the future. I think interest rate uncertainty certainly is playing a role in widening the spread, as uh, as Rob mentioned. And then I think there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of investors, MBS, uh, mortgage backed security investors, also trying to understand what the prepayment risk is going forward. Right, you're originating these loans today, some at even close to eight percent, not too long ago. Well, if rates really do come down as we expect them to, you're going to start to see refinancing pickup of of, of that uh, of that paper, and so there too the the life of those loans is going to be relatively short, and the the uh, investors have to charge up for that as well. So we're in this odd position here, but uh, over time, I would expect to see that um, that spread narrow. I'm not convinced it goes all the way back to the historical mm-hmm. uh, level because I don't know that 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 demand is. That lack of demand out there uh, is a pretty big shoe to fill when it, when it comes to the Fed. But um, I think we, we will see the spread uh, narrowing as things as we get the all clear signal in the economy overall. So do you think it would be reasonable to see the spread go down to 200 basis points rather than like 180 or 170? Yeah, that's been my 200, uh, yeah, certainly. Yeah. But it could be a little bit less than that, maybe 180, 190, somewhere in there. But uh yeah, yeah my, uh, but who knows, right? There's lots of a uh, lot of factors here, as you as you mentioned. I think all those factors make sense, but kind of the kind of the simplistic way I think about it is that the key here is the yield curve, the shape of the yield curve, right? Because right sure, now sure. the curve is inverted. Long short rates are higher than long rates, so that's an expectation that in the future rates are going to go lower. No one really knows where, and that's the prepayment risk that you talk about. That investors yep. are nervous about how low rates will go and will they get bought out of these mortgages at you know these higher rates. But once the yield curve becomes more positively sloped, and it feels like we're heading in that direction, the Fed's going to start cutting interest rates, the short rates are start, going to start to come down, and it becomes more normally shaped, then, then I think investors kind of feel a little bit more comfortable. Prepayment, the concerns around prepayment risk start to abate a little bit, and that's when that spread starts to come in in a more meaningful way. Does that, does that resonate, Rob? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, and then it sort of asks the question about uh, where is the anchor rate or the equilibrium rate for the the 10-year treasury? And that should look like the the nominal GDP growth rate, I think. You're speaking my language. That's exactly exactly the way I think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I I get out of that. That's that actually, other than who's going to win the presidential election, the most common question. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah. Where does the where does the the ten year Treasury rate level off? And so I've just been saying, okay, well, you're asking what's the nominal growth rate for the U.S. economy, and that's yeah. so you know, pick your favorite forecaster, whatever they think the the equilibrium nominal growth rate is. I'm that, your favorite forecaster, right? Okay. Okay. Four percent. Four percent. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we've yeah, been saying four yeah. percent. Yeah. Four percent. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Good. Um. Uh. So, but here, here's the thing. Okay, if mortgage rates go from six six, let's say optimistically to five six, let's just say right. it's down hundred basis points, and that we avoid a recession, and house prices keep rising, the, the numbers don't square. I mean, no. affordability isn't restored with those kinds of numbers. So, w- what does that mean? What does that imply? Does that mean we're in a world of very low home sales, mortgage originations for a long time to come? Well, so you you listed four ways that we can we can sort of uh, address the affordability crunch. Can I give you a fifth one? And I'm not going to yeah. shock anyone here listening. I, I gave you three. I was the what's the what's the four and five? I thought I you listed three. four off. No, but, incomes, uh, incomes, prices, prices. And rates. Oh, okay. So I was yeah. going to give you four. In okay, my give me four. Yeah. All right. Here's the fourth one. I, I'm not going to shock you as the uh, the chief economist of the National Association of Home Builders. We need, oh, to build, we need to build more. <laughs> yeah, we, we need to increase the supply. So, but that's through are, price. That works through price, though, doesn't it? Does. it? That's right. Yeah, price yeah. is the outcome variable for all of this. But I yeah. think what it suggests is that 24, 2025, and twenty twenty six, we will see a, an increase in supply. It's some of this is kind of building the system. There's certainly some challenges. Do we have enough workers? Do we have enough lots? What's the lumber market going to do? We've already seen lumber futures uh, uh, pricing uh, begin to increase. But yeah, I, I, I think you know, the economics here is such that we don't have sufficient supply and, and inventory is limited. And we're likely to continue to see some nominal price growth. Yeah. Okay. So that I, I, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, uh, we need more physical supply we need more units ultimately i mean that's the only fundamental solution to the kind of box we're in here and uh you know at these prices you would think that you know you get pretty good returns if you're a builder right i mean your return on equity your return on capital should be pretty good so there's a lot of incentive to build at the end of the day you would think right so, there, there is, but yeah, it's important to keep in mind the question is whether you can build, and that's build. often yeah. related to is the zoning sufficient? Can you know for the private builders? I and mean, here we're talking about sixty percent of, of single family construction. Can they get access to financing? Uh, you know, I, I think we typically think of the market in terms of the big publicly traded national builders, but for that that sixty percent of the market, they've got to go get what we call A, D, and C loans, acquisition, development, and construction loans. The, the the interest rates on those loans is set effectively by the prime rate, so short term rates. The average annualized effective interest rate on a development or a construction loan in the United States right now is thirteen percent. Hmm. So that is going to cause a constriction in the land and the lot. Nice. Where do you get that data? Where do you? That's get from that? our yeah. We, Your we survey quarterly survey quarterly of survey land okay. developers. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you know it's it, it's availability of financing, cost of financing, and then policy around land and lot development. Um, and so that right now we've seen a little bit of an increase in lot supplies. I think that will reverse itself in lot supply 
availability will decline by the end of 24 as single family home building picks up. Uh, the result is that we've got, I think, a, a fairly moderate increase for next year for single family home building, about a, a 5% gain. Uh, and then the, the the ability to build in 25 is really going to be dependent on how many lots that we can build it, uh, bring into the system. But yeah, let's uh, let me take it a step back. So we're saying the we've got this affordability issue. Uh, we're going to get a little bit of relief from lower rates. We'll get a little bit of relief from higher incomes, presumably continued non-recessionary economy, more jobs, higher uh, continued wage growth. But we still need to see, you know. Uh, relief on the price side uh, in the way that's going to happen is in part, we're going to see more new building. Uh, and that goes to another issue. And that's this uh, so-called affordable housing shortage that yeah. we've had this kind of shortfall in home building really going all the way back to the financial crisis. Uh, and there's a lot of estimates as to the size of the shortfall. I mean, how many homes are we down Right. And, you know, we've got an estimate. Uh, I won't tell you what it is because I'm okay. curious what your estimate is uh, and how, yeah. you, how you get to it. Yeah. To get, just to give folks a con some context with regard to how big a deal this is. I mean, how short are we? So we we adopt, I think, a fairly conservative methodology. There's there's a lot of numbers out there, uh, some as high as eight million. Uh, we we estimate the, the, the housing shortage at about one and a half million. Ah. And, guy, and to, you're speaking, you're speaking, you're like this, this we're, we're in a mind meld. We're oh, that's really meld. funny. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Cause yeah. usually when I, I give that estimate, people go, that's way too small. Yeah. Than the yeah. numbers that we've seen out here. So let, let me give you our methodology. Yeah. We take the American community survey. So the, the, the kind of the deep geographic survey, the census bureau runs. Uh, we look at vacancy rates at the Metro level. We try to age them up to what we think they look like. Cause there's a bit of a, a data lag. And then we basically perform a, a magical calculation and say, if overnight you could add a certain amount of housing stock to return the vacancy rates to their long-term averages, how much is that that housing stock addition? And it works out to about a million and a half. Now we're we're sort of it's a mix of single-family and multifamily, and what it represents is about one year's worth of of home production. Um, so that's that's what we think the shortage is. And uh, we do believe that between 2025 and 2030, we will reduce that housing deficit maybe by about 100,000 homes a year. Um, mm -hmm. Now, an important footnote to this, which is I think some of the larger estimates, three to four million, I think part of the difference in those calculations is what we're counting as housing supply. And I, I give you the big one, I think, results in the difference, which is that over the last five to seven years, particularly over the last few years, we've seen an increase in the supply of ADUs, accessory dwelling units. Uh, Freddie Mac estimates that there are about a million and a half of them. Uh, now, they're not a perfect substitute for an apartment or certainly an entry-level single-family home, but they are holding a household. You know, if you build the, the, the attic or the shed out back that's acting as an apartment, you're turning an owner-occupied home effectively into a duplex with a rental unit. Well, if we've added about a, a million and a half of those, that you take that right out of, of the housing shortfall. And so there's some some other elements like that. But I, I think we're looking at a shortfall about a million and a half units. And it's a it's a multi-year process once we get the industry really kind of operating uh, to reduce that number. First, we're at one seven, aren't we? Last I looked. Is that's that right. right. 
So yep. I, I think we use a very similar methodology uh, that uh, Rob described. We do. We we use the vacancy rates as well. We get uh, oh. pretty close, but then we um, we do add in. So we make an estimate of uh, suppressed household formations. So folks who didn't, you know, they're living at home. They're living with roommates. They there's just no option for them to rent or or buy. So if uh, we look at household formations over the last uh, few years, and we we try to calculate how many of those kind of inherent or latent household formations there are, and that works out to about an extra what three four hundred thousand or so. Yeah, the other yeah, thing that's funny out, because what we do on that is we assume that those those households are basically locked in gone. for social reasons. So it's a more conservative yeah. approach because we have to advise people who have to go borrow money to buy land. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. It's it's an estimate, right? And I'm not sure what will happen to those folks. They to your point, they very well could just, you know, get locked into that right. uh arrangement, especially as they continue to age. Um yeah. but it, yeah, it, some it of them sounds, we assume will be coming back. It, it sounds like Rob that you're saying that the underlying rate of supply that would equal demand, underlying demand for new housing is about 1.5, 1.6 million units per annum. Right. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're very similar. But yeah. did you happen to catch uh, the Congressional Budget Office released a, a report yesterday on the nation's demographic outlook? Did you did you see that? No, not yet. Oh, gosh. You need to go look. Okay. Excellent. You need to go look. It, it, they are... They, uh, uh, are now estimating that we're getting much more foreign immigration into the country, which is intuitive given what's going on right. than originally estimated. It's not a million immigrants every year. Last year in 2023, I think they're estimating two and a half to three million immigrants. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not kidding. And then they have a forecast and the forecast has immigration kind of sl- over the next couple, three years, normalizing back to a million. But I, I, I'm not so sure about that. You know, I mean, maybe, but, you know, maybe not. That's a lot of people and that they got to live somewhere. Right. So yeah, 1.5, 1. 1.6 may not be the number, but you're, you're exactly right. And in fact, it actually reminds me when we were looking at our demographic profile, of the U.S., I, I mean, typically in front of audiences talk about how the millennials were so much larger than Gen Z and what I've seen at the age ranges in the early 20s so kind of members of gen z there's more of them in our current updates of that demographic table i wonder if some of that is uh is immigration yeah right here's the other thing i wanted to point out that 1.5 1.7 million uh it's probably even more than that in the affordable part of the market because the high end of the rental market is oversupplied I mean, we got all these big towers, uh, apartment towers going up, luxury towers going up in bigger, like in D.C. and our uh, Philly, yeah. Chicago. San, I don't know if in San Francisco, but you know, Nashville, LA. Yeah. Yeah. Nashville, yeah. Nashville, yeah. And that's oversupply. That's where we're seeing a lot of a higher vacancy and decline rent. The affordable part of the rental market, it, the shortfall, if you, it will be even more serious than that. Yeah, I, I think the problem is definitely concentrated in that lower end of the market as, as one builder uh, who, who who builds in the affordable arena as well as in market rate uh, said is that the, the challenge for builders is that we're being asked to build 20-year-old properties and, and, and new construction by definition is, is new construction. So the, the filtering process has been broken by insufficient supply. From a, from a policy perspective, it's, it's why the low-income housing tax credit 
and the tax exempt bond programs are so important because that really is the only way that we get new supply that's income targeted uh, to, to you know the, the people that who need it the most. And then on on the for sale side, it, it's kind of the, the same challenge. The the kind of housing that we need the most, entry level, small lot, small square footage, it's the most difficult to build because of zoning reasons, per unit costs things that, that make the market shift to that higher end. So uh, yeah, the, definitely there's the challenges in that entry level space, both for rent and for sale. Yeah. I'm going to come back to, I want, I want to play the stats game and then I want to come back to why this shortfall has occurred. You know, you've already alluded to many of the reasons, but go through them in a more systematic way and then talk about the policy response. You know, what could policymakers uh, do to help? You said hundred K uh, you're gonna we're, we're gonna whittle down this this shortfall 100k, you know per annum. That means I'm gonna be retired, long <laughs> retired. You know I may be in the grave by that time. You know we get enough housing units, so that doesn't feel yeah. unless we. And I'm assuming that assume that that's assuming no policy response. You know that that kind of right. no big dramatic <laughs> policy yeah. focus. It's gonna take some time. Yeah. Uh, it you know it took us 10 15 years to get into this box i guess it's you know logic would dictate you know with right. a little bit of luck it would still be 10 15 years to get out but anyway i just uh, before we go to the stats game hey marissa i i've locked you out of the conversation only cuz you i've got all these housers over here you know, i understand they, they're, yeah. they're 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 like deep it's their thing. stuff this is their <laughs> thing this is their thing i get it uh, yeah but any any comment on the conversation you know up to this point in time that you want to make uh, I, yeah, I had some running commentary as you guys were talking. I mean, one back to the beginning of the conversation about home sales reaching a 20, 30 year low. I don't know if you saw the mortgage apps data for the past few weeks. It's really, really popped up in response to lower interest rates. It's up, down, all around, right? It's a weekly survey and it's very sensitive to interest rates, but it seems to suggest some demand at least coming in to 2024 on the home sales side. So, and and the uh, Rob knows, I'm sure the NAHB builder sentiment survey looks looked a bit better too for the year. So perhaps Finally. we get you know some more supply this year. Right. Can I do, just do, a one yeah. quick comment on that? Yeah, I think it's an important point. I'm curious what the other guys say, and we'll come back, Marissa. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. On the mortgage rate, it feels like. Uh, buyers are becoming increasingly conditioned to think that it is it isn't going back to three and a half on yeah. a fixed mortgage rate it's five and a half to six and so once mortgage rates start getting closer to six it feels like life comes back into the market so you agree with that rob i see you shaking absolutely your head. Yeah, yeah i hear yeah. that on the road all the time you know people sort of say well is is there a magic number well there's no magic number but if we could see market rates get to about 5.9 percent the feeling is there's a lot of demand that will be priced back you in. mean if it has a five handle as opposed to a six five handle, handle. that's yeah, exactly that's right. right yeah i think i think that's right sorry marissa go ahead no that's okay yeah um mm-hmm. And then for just question for Rob, you know, I I think when I go out and I talk to clients and we talk about the housing market, probably the the most common question I get is this question of why don't builders just build more? Because it seems like there's a financial incentive there given lack of demand. 
Um, and you mentioned the the expensive cost of financing or the lack of financing for a lot of builders, especially smaller builders. I think number two, you would say zoning laws in certain parts of the country just make it more difficult to build. I'm wondering what you're seeing on the cost side of building, just in terms of labor and materials. Too. Can I can I stop though? I, I want to come mm-hmm. back to that. I want to come back to that. I okay. want to play the stats game, and then I want to come back to why the shortfall. And that's okay. where you're going. Seems to be going. Good. Yeah, that's a really good question. In the policy, but that's a really you know really good yeah. But let's do the stats game first before we do that. And just to remind the listener, this uh, the stat game is we each put forward a statistic. The rest of the group tries to uh, determine what that is through questions, deductive reasoning, clues. The best stat is one that's not so easy we get it immediately, one that's not so hard that we never get it, and one that it's apropos to the topic at hand, all, all the better. Uh, and we always begin with uh, Marissa. That's tradition. Sorry, Rob. You'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll see how this is done. She's, yeah. she's just way too good at this game. So <laughs> Awesome. Anyway, go, ahead, go ahead, Marissa. You're, you're up first. Okay. Uh, my statistic is 8%. And it's not what the 30-year fixed rate mortgage was two months ago. <laughs> no. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's what I was thinking. 8% uh, was worrying me there. It's housing related? Marissa? It is housing related, yes. Uh, is it come from the real the home sales report that, that just came out this morning? The existing no. home sales? No. Construction no. permits and starts, something. Yes, oh, it, it comes from that report. Oh. 8%. Was that the gain in single family starts? Close, but no. Uh, Completions, increase in completions. No. It might be the, actually, I think it is the increase in completions too, or it's close to it, but that's not what I'm thinking of. This is a percentage increase something. (laughs) What was that, Mark? This is a a percent change in some statistic in that that, uh, report. Okay. Yes. Um. And Rob, you said overall starts. I was thinking the monthly change in single family starts. Single family starts. Because uh, multifamily was down a little bit, I think. And uh, permits? Permits? Yeah. No? No. Marissa, not permits? It's the it's the change in multifamily starts over the month. Oh. So multifamily oh, starts. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Oh, but yeah. Single increased. family I thought they declined. Down for the month. Single yeah. family starts were down almost nine. Minus percent over the month. Multifamily starts were up eight percent. And over and, that is and multifamily real... starts have been sorry, Rob. I was just gonna say that the, the strength in multifamily has been a real surprise. You, you talk to apartment builders and they just keep saying, Where's the financing coming? So much so that hmm. some people actually question the data. I think the data hmm. are right. I think we've seen a shift in where hmm. uh, apartments are being built and who's building them, different financing models. But that eight percent number is really kind of a striking one. We're, we're at 400K. Is that what it was? Uh, annualized starts in multifamily? Yeah, 433,000. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So multifamily starts, they're, they're, they're down about 8% if you look year over year, but they've been ro- basically rising since the middle of 2023. They had fallen quite low. So they're on the upswing. Well, single family starts are still kind of depressed, right? So if you look at... Um, if you look at where they are relative to history, I mean, they're they're down to like late 2020 levels. So they've really been going nowhere since the end of the pandemic in 2020. You know, Rob, my <clears throat> explanation for why multifamily starts have held up is just a lag. You know, it just takes it. You know, these 
financing deals take a long time to kind of come to fruition, to, to get going, to come to fruition. And this, these numbers are still reflective of credit conditions before the banking crisis. And as we move into this year, at some point, it's going to feel things are going to come off really pretty quickly because of the tightening and underwriting that occurred after the March banking crisis last year. Does that does that resonate yeah. with you at we, all? Yeah, our yeah. forecast for 24 is a, a pretty notable drop in multifamily starts. And, and when we've looked at the geography of where multifamily permits were pulled over the last year, there was a, a decline in the central business districts and a rise in exurban, small cities, and even rural areas. The, the market share just shifted out. And so the builder who's building in those markets is less likely to participate in maybe some of the big private data surveyors, uh, but is being picked up by census. Uh, so we think it's, there's been a shift of who's building multifamily as well. And, that, and by the way, that, that shift means more two and three story wood frame multifamily and a little smaller set of uh, the, the steel and concrete. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and the other thing to note is completions still remain very elevated because that's a reflection yeah. of the starts that, mm -hmm. that, have, that you know, have been happening for the last year or so. And, they, yeah. and a lot of those got bottled up in the pipeline to, because of the pandemic and the impact on supply, you know, building materials and appliances and labor and that kind of thing. So and we the should incredible get completion. In, yeah. I was just the incredible number of multifamilies, 1 million apartments under construction. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Barely near the total that we last right. saw in 1973. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. Good. So uh, Rob, you want to go next? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. I, I'm, I'm new to this game, but uh, uh, it is something we talked about earlier in the call. So 19%. Oh, uh, percent of uh, cash only buyers? No. Not not a sales transaction. More okay. is, it, is it related to construction? It's related to the demand for construction. Is it 19% of some demographic? Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, or purchase homes? Is it? Uh, oh, or, first time buyers. Close to that. Let's think potential buyers who aren't potential first time home buyers. Potential buyers. Hmm. Is it some age group? Yes. Okay. 25, so 25 to 34 year olds who could be potential home buyers, but who are not. Okay. Oh, 19% did talk about it earlier. Living we at talking home? about the differences in the housing deficit. Oh, so, okay. So what is it? So of 25 to 34 year olds, 19% of those folks Live with have parents. the financial wherewithal to Chris be- Chris got it. Oh, what was it? Live with it's, parents. Yeah. Oh, they 25 live with their to 34 year olds. Oh. It, that number peaked a few years ago at about 22%. It did move down during COVID, so we did get some unlocking as household formation stepped up. But it is roughly twice the rate that we had uh, two decades ago. So 19% of 25 to 34-year-olds live with their parents. Right. Wow, that's high. Yeah, it was one out of 10 back, uh, you know, closer to the year 2000. So if we think about the long run demographic effect of underbuilding, both in the for rent and the for sale market, it's it's this increase in failure to launch or the uh, uh, the uh, the tenant who lives on the parent's couch uh, that's that's really seen the impact there. And then, of course, that has big impacts on everything else that we track from a macro perspective in terms of 
declining marriage rates, the declining fertility rates, uh, what impact that's going to have on Social Security and Medicare uh, revenue sources. Um, so I, I I think it's it's a, a you know if you kind of connect the circle on this in terms of housing and then impact on demographics that number really is the key one. Do you have any data on the kind of the income level of the families that these folks these kids are living with? No, in fact, that's something that uh, we've talked about doing. Uh, a, a colleague on my team, Natalia Sabinskaya, who I, I went to graduate school with and known for twenty plus years, she she looks at this data once a year, and that's that's something we should we should check out using just the an, yeah, just anecdotally, because I have a large family, uh, so I see everything. Uh, uh, some some of these kids may be there because it's by choice, and they're not leaving. Uh, right. they're just going to inherit that home. Uh, right. That, that, it, that, that's not, no one said that, but that's exactly what's going to happen. You know, they're just, I, I, it's a waiting game. It's, yeah. It's just, <laughs> I, I like where I live. I'm very comfortable. And, and these are nice homes. These are pretty affluent, you know, yeah. folks and no reason to, to launch. It's not a failure to launch. It's just no interest in launching. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that gets back to what we were talking earlier, the housing deficit. Uh, are, are those young people, can that be unlocked? And in some cases, don't because of social changes, maybe the waiting game. Uh, but in other cases, I do think it is people who are looking to make sure they can pay down student loans or, or looking for that right uh, entry-level apartment. Right. Great. I think uh, child care and entry and uh, child care and elder care also play a role here, right? Here. Absolutely. That multi-generational household is just more, more economical. That's, that's a great point. That's part of it too, right? That's yeah. definitely part of it. Yeah, definitely part of it. We, we have a lot of builders that talk about building for multi-generational yeah. families, particularly in certain immigrant communities as well. Yeah. Okay, Chris, you're up. What's your stat? 3.3 million. Housing related? It impacts housing. I would say it's the most important. That, that sounds like the immigration number. It is. Very good. Ah, yeah. ding, 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 ding. Wow, I, in one. <laughs> that's 3.3 million. That's the that? CBO's estimate CBO's of estimate. Uh, immigration last year in 2023 and their estimate for immigration, net immigration this year in 2024. Yeah. And then they have it going down to 2.6 and eventually coming into- Do you believe that forecast? 2.6 back to a million? I, I don't know what else they're assuming. They're a wall, maybe, mm-hmm. right? You have to be assuming something about policy. Yeah, right. Something uh, about policy uh, going forward here. Average yeah. over the last decade was nine hundred thousand per year. Right? right. Just to give it wow. the context. So, yeah, I think I think we're completely missing the number of homes. We, you know, increasingly we're, we're going to need a lot more homes, a lot more homes. Yeah. If this, Here's the other yeah, thing, Chris. Sustained, the, yeah. the the work based on the work you did that you so you got to point out to people. Assuming immigration does at some point normalize, and it will, you know, it will normalize. And you look at 10, 15 years from now, what then is the demand for new housing based on you know uh, new household formation? I see you, Chris. Oh, it's uh, negative, right? We start to. Or just it's just keeping up with replacement, right? You do have natural disasters, you have loss of housing stock, but uh, yeah, if you look out now, maybe this is more 30, 40 years in, in 30, future, 40 years, yeah, right. But that if you assume that immigration does normalize, actually comes in a bit at that point, and you have the fertility rates, you know, coming down, you can say what you want about mortality rates, I guess. Um, yeah, 
the the long long term outlook is certainly that we're not going to need a million plus uh, homes built per year. It's going to be far less. We might be moving more to more. Um, by that point, maybe there's more restoration, more renovation that goes on. Um, but yeah, these greenfield lots, I mean, it's going to be a it's it's different. Going to be a different um, building environment, at least in my my view. I don't know, Rob, if you have a different. Yeah, no, we, we we think that begins to affect the multifamily market the next 10 to 15 years. If you just look at the demographic tables, I do think uh, we're going to see a big shift in what home construction is uh, because of those factors that begin to take hold in the 2030s. And, and one sort of leading element of that right now is the share of single family homes that are built as teardowns. Uh, so, yeah. you know, see in any big northeast city, the suburbs, those inner suburbs, Great lots, great commuting locations, but older housing stock. Teardown construction right now by our surveys is about 10% of single family home building. Mm -hmm. I think over the next five to seven years, that share goes up to about 15%. So 500 basis point gain. And that's a shift in who builds too, uh, because that kind of construction is more likely to be undertaken by smaller private builders. Are you seeing an increase in teardowns to put up more units? Yeah. Tear down a single family and make a do. Yeah, not not enough, but yes. So in some communities, you do have subdivision of a lot by right. So you can create two units or you can build a, a duplex. Uh, a good example of that, like in, in Nashville and certain neighborhoods, you know, they're building two quasi townhouses. Mm-hmm. They're not single family attached, but they might as well be uh, on a prior lot that contained one home. So it actually is increasing the stock. But in a lot of areas, the zoning just doesn't permit that. And so what you're seeing is a larger, more energy efficient, more resilient home replacing an older home. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing even with the areas that are adopting you know, looser zoning or reformed their zoning. It's not an instant solution, right? It's, yeah. uh, you're not going to see people really jump on that opportunity until the economics really work for them. So that's right. Okay. I'm going to give you my statistic. I'm mixing it up a little bit. This is just a big clue, not housing related. Yeah. Yeah. Just to mix it up. Um, Cause it's another really interesting stat uh, that came out this week. Um, $371. Retail sales related? Nope. No, that came out this week. That did come out this week. Great number, by the way. Christmas sales were strong. Yeah, pretty pretty darn good. Shipping cost or commodity related? No, no, Mm -mm. no. Inflation related? Uh, no. I mean, indirectly. Think the American consumer. Think what drives the American consumer? Oh, income. uh... Yeah. Def, it's on there. Oh, is on, it the median weekly earnings? Median weekly yeah. earnings. Uh, that is that that three hundred seventy one dollars is the real median uh, weekly uh, uh, we, weekly earnings of wage and salary workers. It, it's it's deflated by the CPI, so it's an eighty two eighty four dollars. So you know, kind of mistake. The level isn't so important. Uh, I just use that as a as a way to uh, play the game. But what's important is that is now firmly rising. The, so this is after inflation, median in the middle of the distribution of workers, their wages, their earnings on a weekly basis are now rising strongly. I mean, over the past year, 2.2%, uh, that's strong. And uh, it's now above what it was pre-pandemic. And my sense is that 
uh, given the data we're seeing coming into this year, by the second or third quarter, real median weekly earnings are going to be back on trend. Meaning if I go back <clears throat> prior to the pandemic, look at the growth rate in that that data, extrapolate that out uh, till now, uh, till the early part of 2024, we're going to be back on trend uh, here in the not too distant future. So, you know, despite everything, despite the pandemic, despite the Russian war, despite all the inflation, everything else that's going on, here we are, you know, back on track, you know, compared to now you could say, well, who, who, why do we think the pre-pandemic trend was a good thing? <laughs> but it wasn't bad. It was, you know, it was okay. Uh, in the grand historical scheme of things, it was pretty good because we had been through a number of decades of basically flat real incomes, median incomes, because of the skewing of the income distribution. But uh, we are, uh, that that's my uh, loom cube. I just ran out of juice. So that <laughs> world's not getting any darker. It's just my room just got darker. Uh, but uh, I, I take a lot of encouragement in that. Uh, you know, I do think the economy is uh, performing well. It's starting to show up in you know people's uh, real incomes, and uh, I think people will recognize it here going forward. What do you think? Good statistic. Yeah, Marissa. Okay, good. Okay, yeah, right. yeah. What you're smiling? Oh, uh, because I was considering that as my statistic. Oh, is that where are you? Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Very good. Do okay, you? Do you, Mark, do you see a big pickup in, in productivity growth? Do you think productivity growth is going to be fairly constant as we move forward over the next five years? I mean, a lot of talk about AI and, and other elements. I mean, that seems like the driver for wage growth and equilibrium. I, my, you know, Rob, I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into the data, but it feels like, you know, productivity growth has picked up. Now, productivity growth will ebb and it will flow, you know. Right. So we, this could be just a head fake, you know, this recent acceleration. But it feels like it might be resting on more fundamental factors. I mean, I don't right. think it's AI. That's definitely not playing a role yet. I think it will probably second half of the decade, but not now. Yeah. Uh, remote work, the evidence there suggests that it, probably not. That, you know, uh, helping. Pro I think it will ultimately, but that's a that's a reasonable debate. But I don't think that's playing a big role at this point. I think the thing that's driving it, and, and I say this more without you know deep research, just my intuition and in looking at some of the data, is the all the quits that occurred back a year, two, three ago. There was you know remember the the mass exodus from jobs, the and people move to jobs that they're better suited. Uh, to in terms of their education and skill, they're much happier. If you look at the surveys, the conference board runs this cool survey about uh, you know how do you, how do you feel about your job, and people feel really good about their job because they quit and got a got a better one, higher paying one. And I think there was a bit of a learning curve. You know, once you quit one job, go to another, it takes a little bit of time to figure out your new job. But I think that people are figuring that out, and that's you know that should result in some productivity growth. By the way, that I think this brings up a good question about the construction industry, maybe you can shed some light on. If you if you look at productivity growth in the construction trades, it's been pretty abysmal, all right? And in fact, you know, there was a recent paper, uh, yeah. Austin Goolsby, who's, uh, you know, now the the the, the president of the F uh, Chicago Fed, he's a professor at Chicago, University of Chicago, had a paper out about a year ago or two talking about the shortfall in uh, productivity growth in the construction trades, which is, you know, gets back to, we need more homes. And if we, we, it would be really nice if we had a construction industry that was much more productive and productivity was improving. So what's going on there? I mean, is that, 
is that real? Is that productivity shortfall real? And what's driving that? It really is. I mean, on a sort of a kind of a rough measure that we do since 1993, so over the last 30 years, productivity growth in residential construction is up like 13% compared to almost 50% for the U.S. economy, total workers. So the Austin's paper, uh, Raven Malloy at the Fed, I know Ed Glazer and some of his uh, students are looking at this. Uh, It's real. Uh, the question is, why has productivity growth lagged in the sector? Uh, there's a lot of different explanations. I, I think some we can probably discount. I've, I've seen some academics suggest maybe it's monopoly power. That seems implausible in an industry that's got 50,000 firms. Uh, you know, just the, the nuts and bolts of literally how we build homes really haven't changed a lot. There's a lot of off or sorry, on-site construction. 97% of homes are built on-site. 3% are built modular uh, and and manufactured, but that share was 8% 20 years ago. Mm. So that share has actually gone down a lot, even though people are certainly talking about it a lot more. Um, I think, and I'll I'll throw this out there, I know people may disagree with me on this, but I think if you look at the growth in regulatory burdens and and barriers, things like zoning, uh, just the general incremental elements that we add to what takes to build a home compared to 30 years ago. And that does yield a, a, a higher functioning home at the end of the process, but it's more expensive. It's just more expensive to build today, both land development and construction. And that has likely restrained home home building as well. So it is one of those important factors, along with zoning and financing issues, that I think has, has gotten us into this housing deficit. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so that doesn't augur well going forward, though, because regulation is not going away. It's, no. It's- and, and and moreover, you know, the industry is putting a lot of time and effort. And I mean, everyone, suppliers, industry associations, builders into recruit, train and retain workers, bringing workers into the sector uh, and, uh, you know, reaching out to trade schools, and community colleges. Uh, we estimate that we probably need to be adding about 700,000 workers on a gross basis just to kind of tread water with the, mm. the industry's workforce. And from the productivity perspective, productivity is likely to go down before it goes up. And the reason why is we've got a big wave of retirements coming. That means older, human, you know, high-skilled workers leaving, younger workers is going to take some, some time for them to get up to speed. And so productivity is likely not to show a big gain uh, in, in these data, uh, at least in the short run. Okay, so this is a nice segue into back to where we were prior to the the stats game, and that is, what is driving, uh, what has driven this shortfall in in housing, and particularly affordable housing? What are the factors? And you mentioned a few, but maybe you could just kind of go through that a little bit and give us a sense of that. Yeah, this gets to Marissa's a uh, big question here, which is mm-hmm. uh, we we've been saying since 2014, 2015, and it was more of a warning back then. Uh, but uh, we, we identify a set of factors that we think are responsible. I've, I've sort of called them, I hope it's not too cute, but called them the, the five L's that we we lack labor, we lack lots to build on, uh, lending, we talked about financing to, to builders and developers. Uh, we've had issues with the lumber and, and building material availability that was particularly a, a COVID era and then the last one is that kind of broad category of, of laws and regulatory issues, things like zoning rules, incremental gains and building code requirements. Uh, I've seen some pretty uh, insidious forms of uh, exclusionary zoning pick up around the country. 
Uh, I was in one market recently to remodel the exterior of a home. You had to repaint the home in a certain kind of expensive paint. Mm. Uh, when I ex- asked uh, a community official why that rule was in place, he said, well, to maintain community character. And my reply to him was, are we talking the homes or people? Uh, mm. He Ooh. that uh, response. Um, yeah. But it, you add all those things together, labor lots, the, the financing. It's it's just been a supply-constrained environment uh, for home building uh, since we worked off the glut of inventory that came out from the, the great financial crisis. And as you said earlier, it took years to get us into the situation. It's likely to take years to get us out because there's no single, simple, scalable solution. <laughs> you know, if, if any analyst is saying, if we fix X, we're going to get a big supply response, they're kidding themselves. It's, it's going to take efforts on all those different factors to build up the, the supply channel uh, to get more for rent and for sale housing on the market. The five L's, kind of at the the number one L, would you put that at zoning, exclusionary zoning, or would you put it financing? What would be the, the top L? Yeah. If you ask builders, it depends on the market. So if you're in a high growth market like Texas, they're going to tell you it's labor. Undoubtedly, they're going to say the availability of skilled labor is the top challenge. That prevents us from scaling up the amount of home building that we do. In in more medium regulated and highly regulated markets, they're going to say it's 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 laws and regulatory requirements, particularly zoning uh, in terms of getting land uh, into the system, but also just the just the, the the general growth in regulatory costs. I mean, we do a survey once every five years of land developers and builders and try to estimate. What's the share of the final home sale price of a newly built single family home that's made up in these regulatory costs? And we estimate it's about 24%. And that's consistent with some academic research that's come out over the last few decades as well. So um, it's it's an important part of the construction process, but labor and and these, these legal and regulatory burdens that affect lot development, I think I would put at the top. The one thing I don't understand about that, the the, the laws, the regulation, particularly exclusionary zoning, has that really changed since before the financial crisis? I mean, it's always been that way. I mean, yeah, it's always been in our service worse than any. Yeah, the the, the cost of the the actual home cost has been rising faster than inflation. Now, it's a survey we only do once every five years, and it is a survey of builders, so they're always going to complain, obviously, Mm -hmm. about how difficult Mm -hmm. it is to building. But in, in my Chris, so, he's always complaining, you know. Yeah, right. The supply side is always a tough one, but the just the the ticky tack growth of costs, and it's a challenging environment where you know if you'll be talking about a policy issue, and they'll say, well, this is only a thousand, or it's only three thousand dollars. This is a great example of a death by a thousand cuts. It is the the full set of all these things as they build up over time. Um, again, exterior requirements, green space requirements. That's one that's definitely gotten worse over time. You know, how much of the land that you go out and purchase can you actually build on? Well, as green space requirements have expanded, that that restricts the amount of housing supply. There are certainly markets that are, are moving in the right direction. You know, the reason that Dallas and Houston last year built 40% more single-family housing than the entire state of California is you can build with more density. <laughs> In, in California, that the impact and permit fees in California could be a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars before you even put a shovel in the ground. So you you see clear geographic effects as well. Uh, but yeah, over time it has gotten worse. 
you know, my goal is to have one zinger for Chris every podcast, and I just sneak it in. It's like you know Alfred Hitchcock getting into his movie. I, you know, I just have to have one zinger. You know, I think day. you're exceeding expectations there. Uh, <laughs> no, no, yeah, you're, was, you're up I, to like I, three. three. Yes. No, no, I had one zinger. There was only one zinger today. There was only one zinger. Uh, so, uh, and, and Chris, you, you feel free to fire back. I might get <clears> mad <throat> at you, but go ahead. You know, give it a shot. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. Uh, okay, so let's. It's the we're coming closer to the end of the podcast, and I do want to end uh, with uh, well, okay, what do we what do we do? You know, what should be done here? And, and I, I hear you on the exclusionary zoning regulation, but let's just put that to the side. I mean, that's that's a really tough one because that's determined at a local levels, and you know, it's very difficult for federal policymakers to have any influence. They can, they can do some things. They could like say, I'm not going to give you transportation dollars unless you change your, your, you know, your, your exclusionary zoning. But that's a, that kind of a, a, a stick is politically very difficult to execute on. So let's, let's put that to a side. You, you mentioned lie tech. Uh, maybe we should go there first, but you, you, you tell me what should we be doing here uh, to, on the yeah. policy side, federal, on the federal policy side? Continue to protect, uh, even expand. I think in the in the uh, the budget proposal uh, that's uh, pending right now, there's an expansion for uh, light tech housing. That's really important on the the for rent side. Uh, workforce development. Uh, there was some political debate about zeroing out job core uh, funding, uh, which is part of getting those kinds of skilled trained worker training programs in place. Uh, we need to step up our, our funding uh, in those kinds of efforts to to make sure that the, the the jobs that are in demand right now, the jobs that have large number of, of job openings can be filled. Uh, I would say that the federal government can play a role uh, in terms of the zoning issue, uh, maybe carrots and sticks in terms mm. of trying to incentivize state and local governments to do the economically right thing in terms of trying to get more land in the system. I think you're right. There is some reason to be conservative or at least pessimistic about this. The nimbyism is always going to be an issue, although we are seeing the rise of YIMBY, yes, in my backyard movements. And unfortunately, though, we've also got the rise in what we call the, the bananas, which are the build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Pose any kind of, yeah, we view the nimbyists as maybe gettable. The bananas are a lost (laughs) cause. (laughs) They want change, period. So um, that's out there. But yeah, workforce development, we've we've talked about, and this is easier said than done, but I think uh, it would be interesting to think about. We have a secondary market backed by Fannie and Freddie to support mortgages. What would a secondary market for builder and developer loans look like? Uh I mentioned that 13 to 14% effective interest rates. If we pooled and created a standard box of builder and developer loans, could we p- push that interest rate lower? That's something Mark Calabria had talked about when he was the uh, the head of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. It's something NHB has, has been talking about for quite some time. Easier said than done, but I think it should be seriously looked at if we're serious about supply side uh, items. And then uh, lumber and, and building materials. Look, we, we still have a, a tariff on Canadian lumber. That's about a third of our lumber consumed comes from Canada. It's not a tariff uh, that's governed by USMCA or the NAFTA regime. It's it surprised a lot of people, but the Canadian lumber trade is completely outside of, of those rules. Uh, it's set by the Commerce Department, so it's not really kind of a political uh, toggle. But we need the U.S. government and the Canadian government to, to achieve a new softwood lumber agreement and get some stability in that market. 
and then also facilitate additional production of lumber here in the United States, particularly as single-family home building increases in 24 and 25. Yeah, so it, I think it feels like the most straightforward thing to do most quickly would be to increase LIHTC, low-income housing tax credits. It's a very tried-and-true program, been around since the 80 tax, six tax reform law. There's a whole infrastructure for uh, implementing it, the pretty clear what levers you need to pull to juice it up yeah. and builders can get going right away. And it's for, you know, the affordable part, affordable part of the rental market. Right. So that, and that, as you said, that, that is in the tax legislation that to uh, juice up LIHTC is part of the provisions in this current tax legislation. So we got a fighting chance, right. I think to get yeah. that, bipartisan that. support to Republicans and Democrats. It's a program that's been in the code since 1986 and it works for that that affordable rental market because it's supply side focused. It provides okay. equity to allow building that kind of property. It doesn't address the the for sale entry level market. We're, we're going to need different tools for those. I got two other ideas I want to pass by you. But before I do that, let me turn to Chris. Chris, is there, is there anything that other ideas that you, you might want to bounce off of Rob that might be helpful in addressing this uh, affordable housing shortage? Uh, I guess uh, I completely agree with what he's uh, saying in terms of the the priorities here. Uh, you, you mentioned the modular housing that kind of picked my interest there. Do you think that's something that uh, certainly could be used to reduce the cost here? And it, it but, the, the history with with modular and panelized, and this is different than manufactured housing, right? Manufactured housing is about a hundred thousand units a year. That's what we used to call mobile homes. They're they're Right. Higher quality today, more resilient, but modular and panelized is more factory built, offsite construction. As I said earlier, the share, according to the Census Bureau, is about 3%. We've got some industry stats that says it may be as high as six or seven. The the, the challenge there is that often it, it comes in higher than, than forecast in terms of the cost. Mm -hmm. uh, it can take longer. Um, to, to quote uh, Tolstoy, I think it's Anna Karenina, that every... Uh, Happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is uh, uh, different or <laughs> different in its own way. The same is true with construction projects. And so adopting modular. You see that an economist that's quoting Tolstoy. That's pretty impressive. That was a pretty bad quote. I think. No, I no, no, no. I thought that was that was beautifully done. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. the first time this has been done on the podcast. Right? Yes. Yeah. 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 My, yeah. My three years of taking Russian. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, um, but. Uh, with construction projects, they're all unique, right? The the lot, the the building code requirements, the local code requirements. And so the idea of modular is that you can capture economies of scale. Well, that may be true in Ireland or Sweden, where the modular shares can be more than 50% of homes built. It's a lot more difficult in the United States, where you have 4,000 different building codes. So capturing economies of scale is difficult. Now, that makes it sound like I'm, I'm, I'm discounting its ability. I think we're going to see the share of that think it's going to help, but we shouldn't bet all the chips on it. You know, the share should go back up to about 10%, but it's not going to be 20 or 30%. It's not the end all be all. This, this is my, my big theme, which is we need to move the ball on all these fronts simultaneously. There, there's, there's just simply no single solution here. Uh, two qu other quick ideas, just the uh, lightning round. One, uh, you mentioned the secondary market for AD and C loans. Well, why why not a secondary market for chattel loans? You know, the loans that back purchases of manufactured housing. Is that I, 
I think that's that's a good idea as well. Uh, you know, anything that we can do to build out that, that entry level okay. space, I think, is important. Okay, so that's going to be on the list of things you next time we have on the podcast. Yeah. That'll be oh, okay, great. Uh, and the, here's a, a real push. And I was emailing you about this a month or so ago. What about LIHTC for single family uh, for home ownership? You know, LIHTC can be used for single family rental, but nobody does because it's there's a lot of complexity to that. But LIHTC for single family home ownership. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, this was an idea that actually there was some legislation proposed back in the early 2000s. I worked at the Congressional Joint Committee on Taxation on the Hill before coming to NAHB, and I've never seen these proposals around. Uh, it probably would have been a better way than some of the down payment assistance programs. The challenge is that the program, the LIHTC, is complex. It is probably better situated for the, the multifamily universe where there's more scale Single family, it's a lot of smaller builders, and there's kind of an open question of whether the, the the logistics of it would work. But I think it's an interesting idea because it would provide equity to builders to build that, that home, uh, and then it could be out on, on the market for purchase. And then you could target it for certain geographic areas or income categories. So if we're thinking about fiscal policy plan a role, I think that's that's got to be part of the discussion. Just need to figure out how to make it accessible for that smaller builder that's building about 60% of, of the new homes. But, but the publicly traded guys, they do 40% of the building? Uh, top 100, yeah, it typically is going to be about 40 to 50%. Uh, but that, I mean, I, I hear you, and it would be nice to tailor it to the smaller guy. But even if you got something that these big, you know, top 100, that they should be able to have the expertise to be able to do it. No? That, that, that's part of the solution. But I really do think we got yeah. to make sure that it's available to, to all to builders everybody. because then we no, can have no. uh, important industry shifts that we can talk yeah. about separately. Yeah. I guess politically, that would also help out too. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. big builders are not in every single market, they're obviously yeah. in these markets. But then you've right. got a program that's not going to serve those secondary, tertiary, rural markets. I think then you've got a political problem. You're exactly. But, right. You know, that, yeah. that brings up a a point. I thought that was my idea, LIHTC for, for single family home ownership, but every, there's no new ideas. There's just yeah. definitely no new ideas. Anyway. Um, okay. Well, very good. Uh, anything else, uh, guys, uh, we want to ask uh, Rob, Marissa, anything else you want to ask Rob or any other points you want to make before we call it a podcast? One more question back to yeah. demographics and supply yeah. of housing. Sure. <clears throat> and this is for Robin and, and Chris too. When we're talking about housing potentially being oversupplied when you look several years down the road is that does that have to do with this shift of baby the the houses that baby boomers are in transferring to their children i mean how big is that effect going to be that we're going to have this potentially massive inheritance shift of single family homes to a younger generation where does that factor into these calculations yeah, this is sometimes referred to as the silver tsunami. Um, I, I I think it's it's somewhat overstated. I mean, it's funny. I think back to the late '90s, some of the first academic papers as a graduate student that I remember analyzing were predicting this was going to happen with the boomers. I think this this plays out, but it plays out in a much slower, more orderly process than the idea of all these homes hitting the market at the same time. But I think the big thing is what I, I think Chris was, uh, you know, indicating earlier, which is the fall off in household formations, mm -hmm. uh, which which is going to occur. Just means that over time, the demand for new construction is going to evolve. It, it's going to reduce in its its level of output, and it's going to shift more to that kind of tear down rehab type component. 
Chris, anything you want to add? Yeah, just to, just to add, uh, I think one important consideration is the uh, this is the distribution of housing and where it's located, right? So to your point, Marissa, yeah, there will be some of this uh, wealth transfer that goes on. There'll be some inheritances of uh, of properties. They may be in places that people don't want to live or can't live in the future. So that's kind of an offsetting effect. Or we might actually see more building and going on in the 2030s, 40s, 50s because certain parts of Florida or other parts of the country may not be inhabitable or people just prefer not to live there, right? So there, you could see some construction going on because the the amount of uh, property that is deemed you know, lost in some way mm-hmm. from hurricanes or other events uh, could, could cause some of those shifts to occur. And also the preferences, right? You could have folks preferring to move to other areas as well. And there's a generational element here, which is if you yeah. look at the home ownership rates, they've been going up for those older Americans. So the idea yeah. of downsizing or moving into uh, uh, you know, long-term care facilities or things like that, uh, that has declined. I think we're going to see a lot more aging in place take place, which is a boon for the remodeling market because it means reshaping the existing stock for essentially a, a new set of uh, demands for housing. And it's good investment, right? I mean, absolutely. Like people are getting a pretty good return on those homes. So, um, okay. Well, very good. Uh, Rob, this was great. Uh, uh, very informative and thoughtful and uh, covered a lot of ground and really appreciate it. And, um, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll get you back here. Uh, that'd be great. yeah, that'd be really yeah, nice to have you back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Okay. All right. Dear listener, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Take care now.